0: Welcome to Beyond Toast, Episode 2, All By Myself. Welcome to this week's episode of Beyond Toast. I'm Mike Weston and this is the podcast where Toastmasters talk about food. I want to start this week's episode with a reading A Personal History of Soups by Jennifer Wong You taught me soups. A lo fong tong takes hours in the kitchen. Pig lung best remedy for coughs the swelling and collapsing of a massive pink sack filling the basin. Yellow cucumber and cowpea nourishes the skin and clears the throat. Chinese courgette and lean pork dissipates body heat. My brother and I loved your tomato and fish soup. Your own childhood stemmed from the taste of egg flour broth your mother used to make. Coming home, a bubbling clay pot, steam rising from the lid raised by wooden chopsticks, the juicy cartilage between the softened bones. The butcher in England hasn't a clue if you ask for a soup bone. Say that again! The only one I can make nowadays is chicken and carrot, even without fresh gai. You said that every Chinese woman must know how to make soups to catch a good husband. Except that Alex has never cared, because he is a European vegetarian. The hot and sour soup they have here, even in Royal China, is not half as good. It should have been seven ingredients. You can't call it hot and sour without a wooden ear and pig's blood. Not authentic enough. I remember the milky white perfection of golden carp soup in our family aunt, the Quillian restaurant. You kept reminding me to make more soups for myself, to build up my immune system, and also for beauty. Last time I called to say I cannot find the green carrots. They don't grow here. Each year I think of going back because of the soup. I think that's a lovely piece of writing that brings together what food and family mean to us and how they are so strongly linked together in our minds. And that great evocation of family makes me wonder if last week I was a little bit hard on my west coast of Scotland upbringing. I mean, it wasn't as if there wasn't the opportunity to eat some exciting foods. There were the ubiquitous Chinese and Indian restaurants all across town. And it wasn't as if my parents hadn't given me the, the best start in life. As a young child, I was babysat by an Indian family who introduced me to spicy snacks that I developed a real taste for. And my parents' cooking was quite adventurous for the decade. Ignoring the 70s horror that was prawn cocktails served in a hot avocado. So on further reflection, I can't help feel that Perhaps it was my childish palate that was to blame more than my particular circumstances. And this would have been brought into sharp focus. As the first year I spent in halls, all I could really afford to eat was the institutional fare served at the cafeteria. And that was bland, bland, bland. Boiled chicken or a burger. So after a year of that, I think I would have been in the mood for any sensation, and therefore a pizza would have been manna from heaven. Now, in the last episode, I mentioned that I'd been a Toastmaster for 12 years on and off. You might imagine, therefore, that I've probably made a DTM twice over, but that couldn't be further from the case. I think I'd be lucky if I'd officially completed more than a handful of speeches, but I must have given hundreds of speeches or presentations over that time. I think this stems from the fact that I initially got involved with Toastmasters because I was helping a colleague. They had wanted to improve their presentation skills but didn't want to go to a meeting on their own. So I tagged along to offer moral support, and then I saw the the benefit and the value and the friendliness that the Toastmasters offered, and I got hooked. So I spent the next years helping people with their best man speech or giving away their daughters or preparing for an important presentation at work or really honing that business pitch and really felt good about doing that. I even helped set up a club when I moved away from my first club. But as time passed, work commitments grew and I had less and less time for Toastmasters and just drifted away. And sadly, Toastmasters wasn't the only thing I drifted away from. I think I eventually stopped doing so many of the things I loved and whatever time I had was either spent at work or in some distraction from the growing sense of unease and joylessness I felt in life. These feelings eventually came to a head and after a particularly debilitating, depressive episode, I realised that I had to turn my life around. I had to re-engage with the things that had brought me joy and and times when I felt I was doing something useful. So I came back to Toastmasters, but this time not to help others, but to help myself. And I couldn't be luckier with my choice of club. In in just the eight months I've been with London Public Speakers, they've been an enormously friendly and welcoming group. And hopefully you might have the chance to experience that too at some point. So as we're already on the subject of memories, let's perhaps move from bitter ones to possibly more bittersweet, or even tastier ones, as we move into our food memory section. I set the scene last week with my love of Thai food, and this memory relates to the very first time I ever tasted it. It was London in the late 90s, I was just starting my PhD and our supervisor decided to take the lab group out for a special meal. So we went off to a Thai restaurant just around the corner from the campus and I could tell as soon as I stepped inside that this was going to be a different experience. The place shone with copper, copper dishes and copper utensils and there was colourful decorations everywhere. And when the food arrived I was immediately drawn to the old colours. I mean, many curries I'd eaten before had been muddy reds and muddled browns, but this was a bold, enticing red, and a fresh, invigorating green. I know they say you you eat with your eyes, so I was already enticed, excited, and couldn't wait to get on with the meal itself. And I wasn't disappointed. It was a mix of bold flavours and heat, the hot chilli, the... Cooling coconut, the sharp lime, the fragrant but delicate herbs, this clash of extremes, all underwritten with an interesting set of textures. My overwhelming memory was P. aubergine, which, as well as providing an interesting bitter counterpoint, had this lovely squeaky sort of texture where the natural astringency and springiness of the flesh come together to give this great textural punctuation between the -the melt-in-the-mouth chicken and the crunchiness of the vegetables. I think it's safe to say that from this point on I was hooked and took any opportunity to call out a celebration and let's have some Thai. It was therefore no surprise to me that Thai food would inspire a king to write about how fantastic it was. Now, I had hoped to try and find a good translation of King Rangma II's verse of food and dessert, but I was unable to, so if anyone out there does know of one, do let me know. Because it certainly tempted me, just the small snippets I could find spoke of a love of food and love of family. That would certainly fit with the themes of this podcast. I have instead chosen another poem, but as it's over five minutes long, I've just decided to give a short segment here. Hot by Craig Arnold. He squeezes the quarters of a lime, into the salad, adds a liberal squirt of chilli sauce, I won't be hurt. If you don't want seconds, but it's not as hot as I would like to make it, but you always wear a bit of a lightweight. Here, it's finished, try a bite. He holds a fork full of the crisp, green shreds for me to take. I swallow, gasp, choke, pins and needles shoot through my mouth and throat. A heat so absolute as to seem freezing. I know better not to wash it down with ice water. It seems to cool, but only spreads the fire. I can only bite my lip and swear, quietly to myself, so caught up in our old routine. What? Is this hot? You're sweating. Care for another beer? "'It doesn't occur to me that he's sincere. "'Until, my eyes watering, half in rage, "'I open the door and find the fridge, "'stacked with little jars of curry paste, "'arranged by colours, labels faced, "'carefully outwards, some pushed back, "'to make room for the beer. "'No milk, no take-out cartons of gelatinous chow mein, "'no pickles rotting in green brine, "'not even a jar of mouldy mayonnaise. "'I see you're eating well these days.' "'I snap.' Pressing the beaded glass of a beer bottle against my neck, face, temples, anywhere it will hurt enough to draw the fire out and divert attention from the fear that follows close behind. He stares at me, the hollows under his eyes, more prominent than ever. I hope you enjoyed that segment, and if you are interested, please do hold on till the end of the episode. This is the full version, or perhaps even better, look up his work online, as I fear I may not have done it justice, but at least I can be comforted by the next section, which is our comfort food section. And this takes me back to Aberdeen in the mid-naughties, where I was working at the time. When it came to lunch, I'd trudge up the hill towards the main street and find some big supermarket and grab a fairly generic sandwich or salad. Then one day I noticed there was a new sandwich place opening. It was amusingly titled The Earl of Sandwich. And it had quite an interesting line-up of sandwiches. Nothing earth-shattering, but sufficiently different that it soon became a favoured haunt. I think in time I probably ate my way up and down the menu, but there was one that just never left me. It was called The Kitwich, and it was a bagel filled with ham, brie, apple and mustard, and then toasted. Like many good things, deceptively simple, but incredibly powerful in impact. That mix of salty ham, creamy brie, crisp fresh apple, the bite of mustard, all served in a springy and chewy bagel, secured a place in my heart, and it's never really left my comfort food repertoire since. Whenever I want a boost, I just throw together a quick witch, sit back, relax, and try and avoid the cheese dribbling all down my beard. For that to me sums up what a sandwich should be. Simple, satisfying and with a hint of danger. Much like in our next reading. Peanut Butter Sandwich by Shel Silverstein I'll sing you a story of a silly young king who played with the world at the end of a string but who only loved one single thing and that was just a peanut butter sandwich. His sceptre and his royal gowns, his regal throne and golden crowns were brown and sticky from the mounds and drippings from each peanut butter sandwich. His subjects all were silly fools, for he had passed a royal rule that all they could learn in school was how to make a peanut butter sandwich. He would not eat his sovereign steak, he scorned his soup and kingly cake, he told his courtly cook to bake an extra sticky peanut butter sandwich. And then one day he took a bite, and started chewing with delight, but found his mouth was stuck quite tight from that last bite of peanut butter sandwich. His brother pulled, his sister pried, the wizard pushed, his mother cried, my boy's committing suicide from eating his last peanut butter sandwich. The dentist came, and the royal dock, the royal plumber banged and knocked, but still those jaws stayed tightly locked, oh darn that sticky peanut butter sandwich the carpenter he tried with pliers the telephone man tried with wires the fireman they tried with fire but couldn't melt that peanut butter sandwich with ropes and pulleys drills and coil with steam and lubricating oil for twenty years of tears and toil they fought that awful peanut butter sandwich then all his royal subjects came. They hooked his jaws with grappling chains and pulled both ways with might and main against that stubborn peanut butter sandwich. Each man and woman, girl and boy, put down their ploughs and pots and toys and pulled until crack or oh joy they broke right through that peanut butter sandwich. A puff of dust, a screech, a squeak, the king's jaws opened with a creak and then, in voice so faint and weak, The first words that they heard him speak were How about a peanut butter sandwich? I think we can all agree that life's too short for a safe sandwich. But something there's always time for is Mike's eat of the week. One small upside of the lockdown has been it has allowed lots more time for baking. However, a sudden avalanche of breads and cakes and sweets has meant that we are in great danger of what my partner and I are calling... Pandemic Podge. So I had been looking for a baking project that would allow me to create a main meal and not some additional temptation. And so this week I've been trying to make steamed buns or pow. If you're familiar with them, you'll know that they tend to be white, soft and fluffy and with a delicious filling. I managed to get my hands on a treasured family recipe of my partner's. And while my beige, dumpy offerings might have fallen short of the target, they were still pretty tasty. So, one out of three ain't bad, as Meatloaf might say if pushed for comment. As the family recipe is not mine to divulge, I'll instead put a link to a site that helped me get subsequent batches closer to that white, soft and fluffy ideal. Although now that I'm on my fourth or fifth batch, I do wonder if the original concept of a healthier option might have got lost somewhere along the way. And while we're on the subject of things that are lost, it's now time to return to the Fantasy Meal for Four. introduced my three chosen guests, me at uh, three different ages. We dealt with my teenage self last week, and now it's time to turn to myself at the age of 30, where I definitely felt lost. Lost both in terms that my career was somewhat directionless, having achieved my childhood dream of being a scientist, I wasn't quite sure where to go next, and lost in terms of misplaced, as many drunken weekends would attest to. Having stumbled upon heavy drinking as an antidote for social anxiety as a student, I, despite pitiless hangovers, found it difficult to put this particular coping mechanism to bed, particularly as I felt it made me the life and soul of any party. Hence the invite here, as it seems only fair that I should have to enjoy the particular brand of edgy and inappropriate humour that I shielded behind at the time, and hopefully The 30-year-old me might see that directionlessness is not a problem, but an opportunity. Life's rich tapestry is laid out in front of you, and after all, not all who wander are lost. But I can't help feeling that might be overly optimistic. Far more likely that there would be an appropriate joke, and we would find ourselves tossed out, freezing on the pavement. And while my younger self might be inured to the cold by his intoxication, I would have to reach for something to keep the cold night air at bay. Which rather neatly leads to our guilty pleasure section. And this week, it's the scotch pie. Now, I don't know if you've come across Scotch pies. They definitely seem to be, unsurprisingly given the name, a very Scottish thing. But something I grew up with and something that I still hanker for even to this day. Even by the standards of this guilty pleasure section, there's very little to recommend them. They are essentially a blob of greasy mystery meat encased in a rock-hard hot-water crust pastry. And while they are about as tasty as they sound, Both the days where the only protection against that cold, knife-edge Scottish wind was a thin layer of grease seeping from the pie. And those days when you just want something that's quintessentially Scottish. Make sure it's got a place here. And speaking of things quintessentially Scottish, here's our next reading. To a Scotch Pie by Tom Green you mack our mouth's water, your praises we sing, your succulent juices are rindin' in our chin. You sit in your plates, with the beans and the chips, we sock it with bread, the last o' your drips. Come half-time at the rugby, or a fit but 2 your scoff with a bovril, or iron brew. Now your are no haggis, with hardies like hills, served with neeps and tatties in January's chills. your are savoured in gobbles for all the year, by Scots folk everywhere, drinking their beer. You'll no tack the comparison to ill I trust A haggis has skin, but you've a lovely crust Your praises betimes we are loudly singing Loud enough to set the high rafters ringing Friends wad well abroad are wont to cry Ye ken what I fancy, a good scotch pie Now the EU keeps meddling in our affairs Hones off our pies if you want ours cheers Say en and ah, uh, let's a uh, gather with conviviality to toast the juicy Scots pie we are having for tea And that delightful Burns dish brings us to a close Thank you very much for listening to this episode and if you have any questions or feedback please do let me know at info at uk, or through Twitter where I can be found at beyond underscore toast underscore UK Also, feel free to have a wry look at my Patreon at patreon.com slash beyondtoast. I do hope you'll join me next week, which is the final part of my solo triptych. And I'm pleased to say that I have some guests lined up for future episodes. So until then, goodbye and stay safe. by Craig Arnold. I'm cooking Thai, you bring the beer. The same order, although it's been a year. Friendships based on food are rarely stable. We should have left ours at the table. Where it began and went to seed, that appetite we shared, based less in need than boredom. Always at the cheapest restaurants, ties to a swan, taking our chance, with the gangs and salmonella. What was hot, the five-starred curries, the penciled out, Entrees, the first to break a sweat, would leave the tip. I raise the knocker, let it fall, once, twice, and when the door is opened, I can't absorb at first what happened. Face loosened a notch, eyes with the gloss of a fever left to run its course. Too long, letting the unpropped skin collapse in a wrinkled heap. Only the lips, I recognise, dry, cracked, chapped. From licking, he looks as though he's slept. A week in the same clothes. Come in, kick back, he says, putting my warm six pack of pale and bitter into the fridge to chill. There's no music. I had to sell the stereo to support my Jones, he jokes, meaning the glut of good cookbooks that cover the whole wall in stacked milk crates. Six high, nine wide, two deep, he grates. Unright proprietor into a bowl, fires off questions. When did you finish school? Why not? Still single? Why? That drive? That served the ginger eels? Did it survive? I don't get out much. Shall we go some time? He squeezes the quarters of a lime into the salad. Adds a liberal squirt of chilli sauce. I won't be hurt. If you don't want seconds, but it's not as hot as I would like to make it. But you always wear a bit of a lightweight. Here, it's finished. Try a bite. He holds a fork full of the crisp, green shreds for me to take. I swallow, gasp, choke, pins and needles shoot through my mouth and throat, a heat so absolute as to seem freezing. I know better not to wash it down with ice water. It seems to cool, but only spreads the fire. I can only bite my lip and swear, quietly to myself, so caught up in our old routine. What? Is this hot? You're sweating. Care for another beer? It doesn't occur to me that he's sincere. Until, my eyes watering, half in rage, I open the door and find the fridge, stacked with little jars of curry paste, arranged by colours, labels faced, carefully outwards, some pushed back, to make room for the beer. No milk, no take-out cartons of gelatinous chow mein, no pickles rotting in green brine, not even a jar of mouldy mayonnaise. I see you're eating well these days. I snap pressing the beaded glass of a beer bottle against my neck, face, temples, anywhere it will hurt enough to draw the fire out and divert attention from the fear that follows close behind. He stares at me, the hollows, under his eyes, more prominent than ever. I don't eat much these days, the flavour has gone out of everything, almost, for the first time, it's not a boast. You know those small bird chilli pods, the type you wear surgical gloves to chop? Then soak your knife and cutting board in vinegar. A month ago I scored a fresh bag. They were so ripe I couldn't cut them warm. I had to keep them frozen. I forgot what I had meant to make that night. i just cleaned the kitchen. Wanted to fool around with some old recipe I'd lost and found. Jammed behind a drawer. I had maybe too much to drink. Can't be that bad. I remember thinking, what's the fuss about? "'it's not as if they're poisonous. "'Those peppers, I ate them, raw, a big fistful, "'shoved them into my mouth, swallowed whole, "'and more and more, it wasn't hard. "'You hear of people getting their eyes charred "'to cinders staring into an eclipse. "'He speaks so quickly, one of his lips has cracked, "'leaks a little blood along his chin. "'I never understood.' I tried to speak, to offer some small shocked rejoinder, but my mouth is numb, tingling, hurts to move, I called and sick, next morning, said I'd like to take time off, she thinks I've hit the bottle, the high those peppers gave me is more subtle, I'm lucid, I remember my full name, my parents' birthdays, how to win a game, of chess and seven moves, by which and that mean different things, but what we eat, why, what it means, it's all been explained, Take this curry, this fine tuned balance of humours, coconut liqueur thinned by broth, Sir Pulp of Tamarind, cut through by salt, set off by fragrant galangal, ginger, basil, calantro, mint, the warp and woof of textures, aubergines that barely hold their shape, snap beans, heat on jasmine, baspati rice, it's all a lie, all of it, pretext, artifice, ornament, sugar coating, for He stops, expressing heat from every pore of his full face, unable to give vent to any more, and sits silent a whole minute. You understand? Of course, I tell him as he takes my hand. I can't but help notice the strength his grip has lost. As he lifts it to his lip, presses it for a second, the torn flesh as soft, as tenuous as ash, not in the least harsh or rough, wreck of a mouth that couldn't say enough.